Why don't you all come in and join us in the foyer? We were all laughing up here because what you don't see out there because you're looking forward is we have a massive countdown clock. It's just 10, 9, so we know when to start. <laughs> so if everybody wants to come in and we will start the morning with some singing. Once our guitarist is ready. <laughs> Again, with this. <laughs> okay. Stand with us. Great is your faithfulness, O God. You wrestle with the sinner's restless heart. You lead us by still. To mercy. 
have a seat and we have announcements. Good morning. I got to tell you, we, uh, the Quirks and Sally and I, we went and watched a race last night, and we, we got to watch a guy that was more excited about races than most Christians are about church. Um, this, this fella, he spent the whole, like every lap, he'd stand up and clap as they were driving around. He was pointing at them. He, every, you know, I mean, it was unbelievable, his enthusiasm. He actually got uh, sent down the row. People were like, get out of the way, you creep. We can't see because he's standing up in front of everybody. It was hilarious. That was not me. That was not me. But I did think to myself, man, if we, entertain, if we actually were that excited about church on Sundays, it would probably be helpful. I'm not sure if we could tolerate it, though. Um, hey, uh, I'm Shane. I, good thing I read this. Good morning. <laughs> Introduce yourself. My name is Shane, and I've been alive for most of my life. Um, Communication cards. Would you guys do us a favor? We really do need help uh, knowing how to co contact and communicate with you. Uh, so we have a couple of different options. There's communication cards in the back of the seat in front of you. You can go online uh, to our, our, our um, actual Liberty Lake Church app. Uh, we also are working on a faith life connection that we're going to introduce you to down the road. Uh, so we've got several different options. You can even find us on the web page. You can go in there and, and connect with us. There's access to a connection card. But if you fill that out, you give us good contact information, um, then we're able to pass on information, invite you guys to events that we're doing, and communicate better with you. And it helps us to know how to do that. So um, that would be awesome if you would do that. We would really appreciate it. Uh, and also, we, uh, in that process, there's opportunity for you guys to bring prayer requests to us. And the elders do pray. If we get communication cards, we pray for them specifically every time we receive them. Uh, and if you want them confidential, we'll only pray for them there. And uh, if you want the whole prayer, the whole family to be praying for them, we'll get them out uh, via email so everybody can be praying for those needs. So if you fill those out, it really helps us. And, and I think in, the, in turn, it helps you. Uh, Women's Evening Bible Study starts this Tuesday, August 31st at 630. It's going to be in the Kids Rock area. And so if you have signed up for that, be sure to be here for that. And uh, we look forward to seeing how that goes. I don't have any more information, but... You will have more information when you get here at 6.30 on Tuesday. Fellowship lunch. Uh, we have not had dinner together recently, and so that is scheduled for September 12th following the service. Lunch will be provided, but we're asking you to bring desserts to share. So everybody bring a dessert, and uh, that'll be a lot of desserts. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, really excited about this. Hey, we're, gonna, we're actually kicking off youth group. Uh, starting with uh, September, Wednesday, September 15th at 6.30 to 7.30. It's going to be here at church, uh, and I'm going to be leading the Bible study for right now, uh, and we're going to be starting in James. So if you're interested in, in helping with youth, would you contact the office or contact me and let me know, because uh, we're always looking for help there, just like we are uh, for Kids Rock. We definitely need volunteers for Kids Rock as well. And uh, so let, reach out to the office and let us know if you're interested or would be interested in helping. I'm not sure if you've noticed, but we haven't been having snacks here on Sunday mornings. We'd like to kick that off again, but I'm reading this. We need a snack and eater. That's not a snack and eater. 
That's a snackinator, somebody to help actually coordinate and get all the snacks out there and, and, and help our volunteers kind of know who's going to be doing that. So if you'd reach out to Julie, um, you can. the best way to do that is via email or call her uh, starting tomorrow, uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, when she's in the office. That's the best way to get a hold of her. And uh, today, I've already messed up her schedule, so she may not remember anything you asked her because I've been bothering her already this morning. So, um, man, would you guys bow with me? I want to remember to be praying for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. Uh, My concern is that we don't, we don't just shift back to normal. Yeah, we've got announcements. Yeah, we're going to sing, and, and we've got things to do. We've got uh, sprinkler systems to fix, houses to care for, jobs to go to, life to do. Um, but we need to not forget that there are brothers and sisters in Christ whose lives are being completely uh, interrupted and uh, who are giving their lives for their faith even as we speak. So um, would you bow your head and pray with me this morning? Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for this family. I thank you, Lord, for the. Um, I thank thank you for the comfort and ease that we live in here. Um, and at the same time, Lord, I recognize that that's one of the great challenges for uh, in in our lives to be faithful to you is that it's hard to do when when we're fat and happy. And uh, so, Lord, I would pray that as we consider our condition when we consider our lives, uh, Lord, that we would fall on our face before you in dependence of you uh, for our for our faith, for our faithfulness and our service to you. But Lord, this morning, those who are in Afghanistan and, and other uh, countries, Lord, where to believe, to walk in a relationship with you openly is against the law and uh, many, many times costs the very life of, of your disciple, of your children. And so, the Lord, this morning I pray for those Christians who are uh, facing that reality in Afghanistan. And, uh, Lord, we do pray that the faith of your children would have a deep and um, transformative impact on the, on the Taliban, on, on their um, persecutors. Uh, but, Lord, I pray that you would give, the, give these believers boldness, that you would give them hope and faith and joy and peace as nobody can understand, and it can only be from you. So I just pray that you would watch over them, do your will, and take all the glory, and help us to remember them every day. In your name, amen. If you want to stand with us, and a bit of encouragement that I saw this in the last couple of days, the underground church in Afghanistan is expanding immensely through this persecution. So continue to pray. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. 
Take a seat, and kids are dismissed to your classes. Fun, you guys. Anybody have experiences in their life where uh, you realize later that it didn't seem like a great a great thing at the moment, but God used it for something spectacular later? Um, it's it's interesting how how oftentimes in our lives, in the midst of those moments, we can become pretty discontent. Um, Sally and I, I was trying to think of which one of those opportunities I would share with you this morning from our life, which just means that I'm a slow learner. Uh, but I remember there's this, there was a moment where I had taken this really great job up in Enius Valley. I was the Dish Network field service manager and uh, had this huge area that we were covering. And had, I think at the time we had, uh, I don't remember, it was 11 or 12 technicians. We were top 10% in the nation. Uh, of across the nation, we had the top ten. We were in the top ten percent uh, as far as performance goes and service calls go and all that. We were one of the one of the great ones. Uh, and uh, things started to change in the organization. And I remember the moment that I realized I had to resign from this great job. It was the most money I'd ever made. We had full. It was the first time in our marriage that I actually had a job that provided medical care. Uh, like insurance and all of the all of the needs that we had were all provided by this company, and I remember the the day that I got the notice that said I had to write up my technicians if they had their tools in the wrong pockets in their personal tool belts. So can you imagine that you've got a technician who's installing satellites and and the corporate office now wants me as their manager to inspect their personal tool belts and make sure that they're putting the tools in the right spot. Anybody say micromanaging? Well, there was a series of events that I told them, if these things happen, I will not continue to work for you. Uh, one of them was to lie. One of them was to work more than the, fi uh, the five days a week I was contracted for. I wasn't going to pick up Saturdays and Sundays and, and work all the time. 
and I wasn't going to micromanage my crew. Well, they, they'd already informed me that I was going to have to pick up more hours because I couldn't get all of their requirements done, and that if I couldn't get all the requirements done, I could just falsify some of the documents because nobody was going to know at corporate. Um, and, and then they sent me that. And so my bride and I are looking at each other, and we're like, I know I'm supposed to do this. And there was this lovely church up there in this little log cabin with about eight people. And their musical selection at the time, love you guys up in Enos Valley, if any of you are watching this morning, uh, was a, a violin and an accordion, and they sang hymns. I don't know if you guys noticed this about me, but I like guitar. I'm a little bit more of a rocker, and I really like contemporary worship. <laughs> I don't want to go there. And uh, within a couple of months, they asked if I would take the job, right, and to become the pastor of this church. And Sal and I looked at our finances, and we had determined that if we could figure out a way, I was going to quit Dish, we were going to pack up and move back to our house that we had back in Vancouver and just start over back there because I could go back to work as a technician and make good money. But we were out of money. So here's the, here's the situation. I have to quit this job. Our savings are all like, are, are all used up. We're now losing our house back in Vancouver because we're behind on payments because we can't pay rent where we're at and make the payments back there. So we're in we're we're getting letters. The bank was sending us letters about our home back there, and and so we're in this position. And and now we're thinking I'm supposed to go and be a pastor of a church for five hundred dollars a month. How does this work? Um, in fact, I even got, I even received counsel. Um, I, have anybody, anybody in those moments received good godly counsel? Uh, I, we had a family friend contact me and let me know that God would never, God would never actually put me into financial debt by us going backwards on our house. So clearly, it can't be His will that we were up in Enius Valley. So, because that would, God would never do that. So what do we do at that moment? Um, obviously, we couldn't run, and God knew that. He, he made sure our bank account was empty enough. We couldn't actually move back home because we would have ran. The moment that we saw the writing on the wall, we were like, we're out of here. And uh, I look back on it now, and I'm hoping my bride does the same. I think we do. Um, but we look back on it now, and 10 years later, all the things that God did with us at that time in that valley um, it, it actually is part of the, it's part of the story of how we ended up here and watching God work and, and do those things. But at the time, we couldn't see it as being positive. We, we, we were like, this is insane. Who leaves $50,000 a year with medical benefits and insurance, or re insurance, retirement, and all that good stuff for $500 a month? Glad you're here. Only a crazy guy does that. And, uh, and yet now, look back and see that God did that on purpose. And he had a reason for it, but at the time it didn't feel like it was good. I find it interesting that we're uh, in this text again this morning. Um, had a great conversation. I don't know if you guys saw, but, uh, many of you may not. I'm not sure if Victor's here or not at this point, but I ran into Victor and uh, he's got a 
some stuff that he's dealing with in his life, and he was asking for prayer. And so Craig and I got to pray over him, and he made the comment about uh, the difficult things that we're going through are, don't always seem great at the time. And, and, and he's asking for prayer that God would help him uh, have a right response to what he's going through. And I thought, man, Lord, how is it you put all these things around on a Sunday morning as I'm trying to preach a message about good and bad fruit and how you use these things? I think you'll see the connection as we jump into the text. Open your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 24. We're actually going to read the whole thing. Now, if you've been reading ahead, you'll know that's not a big deal. If you haven't been reading ahead, you probably got a little nervous there for just a second. Jeremiah chapter 24 says this, After Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken into exile from Jerusalem, uh, Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, together with the officials of Judah, the craftsmen and the metal workers, and had brought them to Babylon, the Lord showed me this vision. Behold, two baskets of figs placed before the temple of the Lord. One basket had very good figs, like first ripe figs, but the other basket had very bad figs, so bad that they could not be eaten. And the Lord said to me, what do you see, Jeremiah? And I said, figs, the good figs, very good, and the bad figs, very bad, the bad so bad that they cannot be eaten. Then the word of the Lord came to me, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so I will regard as good the exiles from Judah whom I have sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. But thus says the Lord, like the bad figs that are so bad they cannot be eaten, so will I treat Zedekiah the king of Judah his officials, and the remnant of Jerusalem who remain in this land, and those who dwell in the land of Egypt. I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, to be a reproach, a byword, a taunt, and a curse in all the places where I shall drive them. And I will send sword and famine and pestilence upon them until they shall be utterly destroyed from the land that I, have, that I gave to them and their, uh, their fathers." The first thing that we see, what we're looking at today is this good and bad fruit. Jeremiah gets a vision about good figs and bad figs, right? And the good figs uh, are so good. They're, they're amazingly good. And the bad figs are so bad that they can't even be eaten. Any of you guys had bad fruit? I'm one of those weird guys. Like if I pull out the grapes and three of them have got mold on them, the whole thing can go away. Okay, a few of you actually can relate with me. There's some of you that are more frugal than that. And you'll actually pull out the bad ones and I'm seeing nods. That's right. What do you mean? Well, why would you not do that? Because the other grapes are still fine. Uh, this is a basket of bad figs that are so bad they cannot be eaten. It, from, the, from the appearance of them, Jeremiah can tell that there's no way that they're going to be eaten. So we have this contrast, this comparison again of good figs and bad figs. Uh, we're going to start out by looking at the good figs and talk a little bit about what God says, what the Father says about the fig trees. But one of the things that we need to recognize did you guys catch what uh, King Nebuchadnezzar did? The people that went into captivity, did you see who he drug into there? He references the son of Jehoiakim, uh, the, the, who became king, I think it was like three months he, he was on the throne. 
when he got taken into captivity. But what's interesting is that he takes the officials, craftsmen, the metal workers. He's, he's taking the productive people, those who are making the city, who bring value to the city and, and, and actually have produce or producing things within the confines of Jerusalem. He takes, I, I think you could almost say, he takes the people that are really uh, uh, making the place function. And he takes all of them out. And he takes them to Babylon. This is when this is happening. So it's after this captivity, this exile has started. He's removed these people from that place. And then the Lord shows up to give Jeremiah this word, this, this, this prophecy, uh, and this promise for the people of, of Judah. The first one is the good fruit or the good figs. And who is it that represent the good figs? Did you, did you see that in text? Who is it that represented the good figs? The captives, the ones that were taken into exile. That's right. They, they were the ones that God says, those people, they're the good figs. They're the ones that, are gonna, that, that this is going to go well for. Does that seem like a good plan? No? I, on the out, I mean, when you look at that from the outside, you're like, how is captivity by Nebuchadnezzar good? And yet the Lord says, this is my good for you. In fact, remember last week, um, and we've seen this in the text previously to this, that he says, I'm offering you a path of life or a path of death. You have an opportunity to choose life or choose death. And, and he was, again, drawing that same parallel. Those who go with Nebuchadnezzar are going to have life. Those who stay will have death. And in this process, uh, God is gracious, and he, and he actually delivers for them the promise of those who stay or those who are in captivity. He talks about how God will set his eyes on them for good. He will bring them back into the land. He, he won't tear them down, but he'll build them up. He'll plant them and not pluck them up. And he talks about this heart issue. We actually see in Amos that same promise. Uh, God promises this restoration. I love, I love it in Amos because it, he actually uses, uh, he ties it to the, the productiveness of the land, to how great this blessing, this restoration is going to be. Amos chapter 9, uh, starting in verse 11, says, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its bre uh, breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. Then they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord, who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit, inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. What a picture of, of great success, great, and, uh, you know, when, you, when your plow guys outrunning the reapers because they're taking too long to get all the produce out of the fields. I don't even know if we understand the pictures of the hills flowing with the sweet wine of God, with the blessing of God for the nation of, of Israel when he restores them, when he, when he reestablishes this root, this booth of David. 
That's the promise that he's been giving the nation of Israel. Really, from the very beginning, if they obey him, if they will follow his his commands and, and live in a right relationship with him, he's going to do this for them. That's, that's the great promise that they had. And with that comes the very blessing of God. And isn't it, I, I love that you, you see these patterns all throughout Scripture. We actually saw it uh, in the beginning of Jeremiah, right? God promises Jeremiah that I'm going to make you somebody that's, you're going to be this great person in the nation of Israel, and I'll use you to build up and to tear down, to plant. He actually uses that same language as he talks about Jeremiah. And here the Lord's reminding Jeremiah that he's going to do this. He's reminding the people of Israel who are in captivity that he's going to do this for those who are faithful, those who will follow him and, and who really are dependent on him and trusting in him. But this is God's blessing. Captivity is God's blessing. I've been wrestling, really? That, that's the good part. He says that he will give them a heart to know him. Uh, look in Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 11. I know we could have gone to the New Testament for things about the heart, but I, I love it when the Old Testament actually like, shares what Jesus tells us in the New Testament about the heart and about what God was doing. In Ezekiel chapter 11, starting in verse 19, we see this. And I will give them one heart. And a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. He specifically references this heart issue of stone and, and removing that heart of stone and, and giving us a heart of flesh so that we can live in obedience, so that the nation of Israel will respond to his word and obey. I always love this part of the text because I wrestle with myself. I'm like, do I have a heart of stone at times? Am I hard-headed? I love how some of you are looking down right now. You're like, whoa, don't make eye contact with that. But you look at our, we look at our lives and we look at our responses to the things of the Lord. We look at our responses to how life happens and, and how easily we can become uh, stubborn and, 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 and become hard in, in our responses to God. I look at my life and I think, God, there's a number of things that when they happen, I did not go, man, praise Jesus that he's sovereign. Praise God for this situation in my life. I saw it as painful. I saw it as difficult. I, I saw it as something that, in fact, I found myself angry at God when, when I remember uh, the, the very day, I still remember the day that my, uh, I had to go in and sign the adoption papers in front of a judge for my brother and sister and I. When my dad was adopt, my stepdad was adopting us, and, and I want to want you to know I'm I'm I love my dad. He is my dad. Uh, he he chose to stick with us kids when we hated him. He chose to marry my mom when it cost him his family farm. His his family disowned him when he married my mom, and kicked him out of the family farm. My dad paid an incredible price to become my father, and I hated him, and I made his life miserable. But I still remember the moment. My brother and sister were pleading with me not to sign. And I was a 12-year-old, and I go in, and I've got my mom and dad telling me that I have to sign because it's best for us. I still remember that day. That was, that was a horrible day. Brother and sister were angry with me when I got out. I was angry at everybody. 
And yet now I look back and I see, the di- I see what that man was. I see who my father really is. Because I've had time and I recognized that part of the big pressure was my real dad wanted to get out from, from being responsible for us. He was really hoping we'd sign those papers and he could get rid of us. That was not a pleasant day. And yet God did an amazing thing in that moment. As we think about God's best, as we think about the difficult things that that happen in our lives, I believe that God is using them to transform our hearts to be more in line with his. And he's promising the nation of Judah that those who he's taking captive, he's going to do this for them. He's going to restore them. There's hope in their captivity. There's hope in this scenario. The other side of this coin is the bad figs, the bad fruit, those who remain. Isn't it interesting that that in this picture you have go into captivity or stay in the promised land? Right? Stay in Jerusalem, the very city of God, the the promised land. This is the best place. The temple's there. I mean, this was King King David's space. This is where Solomon built the temple for God. This is the nation of Israel's identity is Jerusalem. And, and how could God let that fall? We have to be safe here. They've got prophets who are lying to them, telling them that they're safe there. But literally, God is hang, setting out for them that the best, what, my best, where, where you're going to be safe and redeemed is by going into captivity. But if you stay in the promised land, you will face utter destruction. It's uh, ironic sometimes my bride and I, we, we dialogue about our differences, and I don't actually like change just to make change. I, I, you know, I, people think I'm a fly by the seat of your pants, I think because I'm an artist or something like that, but uh, we watched a race series last night called Figure Eight Racing. Um, I've got a video of it. It's insane. They were trying not to crash, but they were flying past one another, I mean, in inches away from each other. It was unbelievably, and I realized at that moment I would not be interested in that. I'm watching that going, I love the idea of racing. I'm a, I love some of those things, but nope, that's not for me. And so there are things in my life that, where I don't like change. But when you compare my bride and I, or, and even some of our boys, I seem like I fly by the seat of my pants. I'm like, hey, let's go try this. And there was a, there was a time when we got married where, um, where uh, we were actually, before we got married, I was trying to get her to go to see her parents, and we, I gave her only seven days of preparation to, to spend the weekend at her folks' place six hours away. And I found out that wasn't enough time. I, I, I'm like, I would have just thrown my stuff in and left on that day. And I realized I had to change how I thought about life and how I processed life. Can you imagine in, in the city of Jerusalem, you have people who are seeing this massive army who've watched the destruction that King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians have been able to do across the nation. And, and, and they're inside their walls where they've, been, where they've had security, where God's protected them, where they've had this history of protection. And here's Jeremiah telling them, hey, it's going to be safer for you if you go with King Nebuchadnezzar. Wouldn't you all agree that would seem a little nuts? And yet here God is telling them, this is what I'm doing. This is where I want you to go. Don't stay because of what's going to happen. And then you have that he specifically references the people that ran to Egypt, that went to, to find safety on their own. 
And again, when I, I think of myself and I'm, I'm like, man, Lord, this unfortunately happens way too often in my life. But I, I constantly work hard to figure it out on my own. Anybody else good at, at doing stuff on their own? You good at independent problem solvers? Yeah, don't raise your hands because we always get in trouble, right? There's a point at which you realize that the Lord actually wants you to be dependent on him, not doing it yourself. And, and, and when we're in those moments and you're looking at these scenarios, we will quickly go into problem-solving mode. We'll quickly get to where we're trying to fix everything. And when we see something that looks like a good idea, we see something that looks like safety, we'll run to it. Egypt was their ally at this time. Isn't that interesting? The nation that they fled from slavery from. The very nation that God redeemed them out of their slavery into a relationship with God, the people of Israel going back to that in their rebellion during God's discipline. Now, here's the thing. God's promise of uh, making them a whore, uh, a curse, doing all these things, this was, not, this was not a surprise to the Lord. It's not a surprise to us in the text because if we go all the way back to Deuteronomy, Turning your Bibles back to Deuteronomy, chapter 28. Now, I'm going to spare you the entirety of this passage because this process actually starts in verse 15 and goes all the way to verse 68. That's how much text is actually incorporated in God telling the nation of Israel what's going to happen if they rebel, if they do not obey. There's a lot more here. We're just going to read the first hundred, no, the first few verses. Deuteronomy 28, verse 15, he says this, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I commanded you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed you shall be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall be your, uh, your, or excuse me, cursed you shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion and frustration in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. That's just the first five verses, and he goes on to verse 68, explaining what he's going to do to the nation of Israel. And this is all the way back in Deuteronomy when Moses is laying out for them the promises of faithfulness of, in this relationship with God and the consequences of disobedience. And here it is, God says, I'm fulfilling that promise that I gave you. All the way back when I made you a nation, this is what your end is going to be. And then the last thing that we see in the bad fruit is that he promises that he will bring complete destruction. He's going to destroy them as a nation, those who continue to rebel, those who stay in the land, those who refuse to submit to his process and to surrender to his authority. They will be destroyed. But those who go into captivity, they will be restored. 
know, one of the things that grabbed me as I was going through this text, God's ways are not our ways, right? We say that. Would you guys agree with me? I mean, we actually see it in the text. We're like, it says it in the Bible, God's ways are not our ways. But, but really wrestle with that for a minute. Are you okay with that? Well, I know we're in church. Yes, you have to be okay with it. Everybody, we can all say, yeah, we're okay with it. But are we really okay with that? Do we really put our head around the fact that when we read in Scripture certain things, that they stand in complete opposition to our personal pride, to our own, just our own thought process of how we actually do life? I mean, for example, captivity can be good, but repentance is, is better. I'm, I'm going to just say this. It's my, it's my point. Under God's ways are not our ways. Captivity can be good, but repentance is better. God's using captivity for the nation of Israel to discipline them, to restore them back into his plan, into his relationship with them. And in this setting, captivity is good. But what I love about this is that if you go back to 2 Kings chapter 22, we actually see the picture of, of Josiah. Remember when Jeremiah started this whole thing out, we heard about this King Josiah who did all these wonderful things. There's a passage in 2 Kings 22 where we actually read about Josiah and the Lord's responding to him specifically in 2 Kings 22, verse 18. He says this, But to the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they shall become a desolation and a curse. And you have torn your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought back word to the king. Here's King Josiah, who finds the scripture, who begin as they're reading, the, he, he realizes all of the stuff that's going to happen. He, I, they're probably reading the law, and they're reading through Deuteronomy. It wouldn't surprise me if he'd actually read Deuteronomy 28, but they read all 60, 70 verses. And Josiah sees all that, and he repents, and he falls on his face before the Lord. God can use very difficult things in our lives to bring repentance, to bring transformation. And oftentimes we do. In fact, we make jokes about how he had to use a two-by-four to get my attention. Right? Anybody found the end of the spiritual two-by-four? For some, some, of, some of us are so good at it, we've upgraded to a four-by-four. Correct. One of the guys up in Enius Valley, he said, uh, dimensional lumber didn't work, so God used the tree I was falling. And it spun around and knocked him like six feet off the ground and over across the stump. He woke up a while later and he goes, okay, Lord. I'm like, really? That's your response to that? What was God talking to you about before that happened? That was his response. He's like, God was trying to get a hold of my, get a hold of my head and my heart. But God can use the difficult things in our lives. And I'm not saying that, we, that we, we look for difficult things. Some of us are naturally good at that. I'm not saying that that's the process. I'm not saying that we, that, that we don't pursue peace. I mean, we're even encouraged in the New Testament to pray and live in such a way that we're at peace with people. There's a reality to that. 
But I think part of our worship needs to understand that the sovereignty of God, the, the, the wonderment of God is that there's times where he uses difficult things because they are necessary for transformation in our hearts. They're necessary to bring change. Because it wouldn't happen otherwise, it's not happening. And he knows that and he engages in this wild process where he uses things that we would say are difficult or bad to bring good and to bring transformation for his people. I added repentance is better because initially I just had captivity is good. And I'm like, okay, but repentance is better. Amen? Okay, because that's, that's really where I want to encourage you to go. Don't, don't wait for the hard things, but repent, repent sooner. <laughs> up in Aeneas Valley, after my friend took the log to the head, uh, we came up with a, with a term that we decided we'd start using as part of our motivational encouragements in our walk with the Lord, surrender sooner. It's very catchy, but uh, when applied, it's very effective. Surrender sooner. Don't wait for the four by four or the tree. Take the twig. Well, they sting more. I found when we you, anybody else have to pick willows for your sw- to get switched. We tried every size. None of them worked. Well, no, they all worked, but none of them were good. I think another thing that we struggle with understanding and we struggle with the value of is that God disciplines those He loves. Right. Amen? Wow. Isn't it fun when you throw those out there? And um, I was, again, I, I love this process because as you go through uh, in, in your study Bibles, if you guys have study Bibles or even Bibles just with cross-references where they give you uh, the different texts that are attached to the Scripture, I want to encourage you to do that from time to time because you're going to find things that are really incredible. We know in the New Testament we see this picture of God you know, he disciplines those he loves as a good father. We see that picture. We actually, we see that uh, reference. But what I love about the Bible is that this is also stated in Proverbs chapter 3. So turn your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 3. We'll get to the New Testament, I promise. But Proverbs chapter 3 says this, starting in verse 11. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves. As a father, the son in whom he delights. How many of you as children were delighting in the discipline of your fathers? In fact, I would, it was interesting as I was wrestling with this, I realized that in my own life, I didn't really value God's love in discipline. Even as a, as a young father, I, 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 I didn't really get it. I told you I was angry. Um, I, I grew up a pretty angry kid. Uh, amazingly, I, you know, I look back at my life now and I realize that I didn't really have a terrible life. We, we had, uh, you know, my mom was single for a few years and a stepdad came in, but we had a church family that was around us and it was really God's protection and a blessing. But um, my response to that, I, w- I was pretty angry. And when our first two boys showed up, uh, my discipline process would tend to stem from anger. Uh, it's one of the things that I regret. I don't know if it's the most. I don't. I don't. I don't even know if regrets the right word. I lament that I was not a more gracious, loving father in discipline in in our early days. Uh, and I realized that I didn't value God's discipline in my life at that time either. 
because I didn't, I didn't see it. I didn't understand the value. Um, I think as you have more time in life and you do that, and then you have grandkids come along, I think it like exemplifies, the, it just magnifies the whole thing. You're like being gracious and loving and disciplined is super easy with grandkids. Really cool. Sorry, I'm a new grandfather too, so I'm still learning all of that. But do we really value God's discipline? Do we really look at, look at the times when he exposes our sin, when he exposes our attitudes, when he exposes our bad behavior and go, oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. I really needed that person to cut me off on the freeway this week. That was so helpful to expose the depth of my depravity. I'm being a little sarcastic, but I don't know that we do. At least not always in the, at the immediate moment of, of that exposure. Oftentimes, I struggle with feeling, being ashamed. I'm like, ah, not again. I'm glad it wasn't a church person. I don't know if you guys have had that, but when you drive, you, you should probably think about that, especially if you're close to town. I think I confessed this a while back, but I had a church person do that to me on, a, on one of my favorite corners where there's two left turn lanes. Have you guys ever figured out why that's cognitively impossible for humans to do? They have dotted lines. There's two lanes you leave. There's two lanes you enter. How can this be difficult? And this one Sunday morning, I'm driving to church, and this blessed brother drives right across my lane and, and comes right close to the car that was making a left-hand turn going the other direction, so I had nowhere to go. I had to anchor my brakes to keep, in, keep him from him taking my Mustang to him to church with him. And I am I'm growling. That, that's where my heart attitude was at. I mean, I'm like, there, there's, there's not words coming out of my mouth. I'm actually, you know, like, uh, and my, my, bride, my bride was in the car. And she, I wonder if they're going to church. Turned out it was. It's actually somebody I would say was a good friend of mine. <laughs> he had not clearly heard my sermon about that corner in Thursday night service at that point in time. But, oh my goodness, I, God protected me mostly because my bride was there because she referenced the potential of that being somebody heading to our church at that time on that morning before I could respond to that moment. But do we thank God for his discipline? Do we look at those moments where God exposes the darkness of our heart when he exposes our selfishness and he says, hey, this is my best for you. If you're married, you've got one of the greatest opportunities for that to happen on earth. Are we grateful? <laughs> oh, thank you, Jesus. God disciplines those that he loves. It's the very love of God that does not leave us where we are. It's the very love of God that did not leave Judah where they were at in Jerusalem, in religion, and in complete rebellion to him. It was his love that drove them out. It was his love that actually drove his discipline and, and, and the suffering and the painful process that they went through. When we're thinking about other things in our lives, as we're applying this truth to how we live, another area that where God's ways are not our ways is the greatest 
this idea of being the servant of all, right? Putting others first, of not taking care of our own needs and our own stuff first. The reason I grabbed this one was because of how God specifically, or how Jesus actually specifically illustrates this in Matthew 23. Look at Matthew 23, uh, verses 1 through 12. Jesus is talking to his disciples and to the crowd that's around him, and he gives them this illustration. Matthew 23, verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but do not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens and hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers, and call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructor, for you have one instructor, the Christ, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The very character of God is displayed in the life of Christ on this issue, and, and yet he is expressing the, to the religious leaders of that day, he's de- demonstrating for the disciples how, how much the, the hypocrisy of what they're saying. He's saying that the law of Moses is good. What they're telling you is good because they're telling you the stuff that we're seeing in Deuteronomy. They're telling them the, 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 the laws of God, and yet they don't do them. They preach, but they don't do. So listen to what they're saying, hear the word of the Lord, but don't repeat what they're saying. And I I love how far he takes this, that the man's heart, the issue with man's heart is that we want to exalt ourselves. We want to be prominent. We want to have the roles of teacher or rabbi. That that was part of the problem that God, that Jesus actually ran into when when he showed up is the pride of man was present in the religious practices, but it's also present in all of us. I know many of us don't particularly like to be noticed up front. I happen to enjoy it. It's actually one of the things that I love. I love to be noticed. Hello. Can you tell I'm here? Now, I don't always act out on that because I've found that there's certain places that it's not appropriate. Like if you're at the races and you're like doing all this stuff and you're like, hey, sit down, get out of our way. We can't see. That's not, you're not popular at that point. Um, but I do like to be noticed, and so I do things to get myself noticed, and other people do not. But we all, I think, in the deepest parts of our heart, want to be valued and want to be have some point of our lives valued. And I believe that that's one of the areas where it can be very easy for us to get caught up in protecting ourselves, protecting our own interests, and taking care of our needs and not always surrendering to God's plan. Who would think that being the servant of all would get you in the greatest position in heaven? You mean not being the great preacher? Not having books, write, writing books when I'm dead that people like fight over? Wouldn't that be cool? 
I love pastors that have, uh, well, I'm going to get in trouble for this, but I'm going to do it because you guys are okay with this. Uh, I love pastors that have parking spots with their names on them, reserved for. That just, if you got to have a reservation and you're a pastor and you need to be close to the door, then get the handicap sticker that gives you permission to be there. If you don't need it, go be a servant and park somewhere else. Isn't that crazy? We actually put reserved for. Don't don't put this online. Uh, but they actually did that for one of the pastors up in Enius Valley. I know. I, I just did that to be funny. That's part of me trying to be funny. We're here. They actually had a sign up there next to the little building out in a big gravel field, 16-acre field. And there's a sign that says reserved for the pastor. I almost ran it over when I went up to visit him. <laughs> Oops, sorry I didn't see that. <sighs> Who would have made a system where the, the servant of all gets elevated to the top? That's crazy. That's what the church is supposed to be. And yet when you watch what the church does, when you watch what... What happens in our culture? What, why is it that there's so many elevated people? Why do we elevate people into, into positions of status? And what, a, what a crazy, wild thing. Christ is supposed to be our head. We're supposed to have one father, one teacher, one focus. And we let him exalt us. Just as we think about things that God says, that the, his, where his ways are not our ways. The, the final thing is that he says that if you want to save your life here on this earth, you will lose it, right? Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 28, he says this, and Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. But what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The very idea that we would promote ourselves, that we would protect what we have here on this earth, that we would protect our life. Jesus says, if that is your focus, if you are the focus of your life, if this now immediate temporal moment in history is your focus on life, then that's all you're going to get. But if your focus is on Him, if your focus is on the eternal thing, if you're willing to lose your life here on this earth for the sake of the Lord, you will gain it for eternity. I got to be honest. I, I look at my life and I say, God, where is that at? I mean, in reality, where is that connection hit? I had somebody show up to my door out in Aeneas Valley, and um, they wanted to let me know that I was no longer in God's will um, because I was driving too nice a truck for a pastor out in that area. Now, you have to understand the truck was given to Sally and I because we couldn't afford it because it was too nice a truck for the pastor out in that area. But it was given to us. And I, I was sharing with the end of it. I'm like, 
okay, but we didn't buy it. I mean, it was given to us. A couple of churches got together. I think it was one particular, but the church got people got together and they said, we want to we wanna protect your bride, not let her drive the jalopy that you keep driving around. And so we want her to have a nice rig. And so they gave us this really nice truck. Well, this person felt like it was God's thing in their life to stop by and let me know how inappropriate that was. And what was the focus? What was the, what was the focus of that moment in my life? Should I have given the truck up? Was that inappropriate for me to have a nice rig? Well, it depends on who you ask, right? Do I need to give up all my money? Should I just should I throw all that away and, and go and serve the Lord? Depends on who you ask. So what does it mean for you and for me to die, to lose our lives, to live in such a way where we're not focused on the temporal, we're not consumed by the momentary, by the immediate, but our eyes are on the Lord, our eyes are on eternal things. I think ultimately, each and every one of us have to make a decision about what that means in our hearts and in our minds. Some of you would never have a problem never owning a Ford Mustang in your whole life. It just, it would not be a challenge for you. You could have 10 of them and it wouldn't matter. If I had 10 of them, it would matter. It would, it would be an issue. Just say it. Because we all have different things, right? We'll have different things that we can worship above God. We all have different things that become that idol, that moment of worship that needs to be surrendered. I think Paul says it best in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to close with this. Chapter 5, verse 6. And remember, the, the Paul was facing great tribulation. The church at this time was facing great tribulation. And he says this in, in 2 Corinthians 5, 6. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the, judge, uh, the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or or evil. Paul seems to have this picture and this idea of a relationship with the Messiah, a relationship with God that says, I'd rather be present with you than to remain here on this earth. But God, you're sovereign. And so as long as I'm here, whether I'm here or I go home, my focus is to please you. My focus is to be in relationship with you. My focus is to worship you. Recognizing that someday he'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ and what he's done in this earth, on this on the earth in his life, will be assessed by Jesus. And so his focus is that relationship and a dependency on him. God was driving Judah away from Jerusalem to restore within them a heart that would know him, that would seek him, and he would be their God. And I believe that as we look at what God does in our lives, as we look at how he deals with us, how he uses difficult things, how he may someday, actually, as we see with Judah, he's using captivity 
which was a negative thing, which was not, a, not something that they were excited about or looking forward to. He was using that as his method to bring restoration and to, rest, to heal them and to protect them. And it was in that moment, it was in that process that God was caring for, loving his children, and transforming their hearts. And as I think in my life, as I look back and, and I, I recognize where he's done that, my, part of my prayer is that I would respond more favorably next time when those opportunities arise. So we can pray to that end. Good fruit or bad fruit? Are we worshiping God in this position in the in this situation? Are we trusting him with our whole life? I'm in process, I've determined. Anybody with me? I'm in process. And I'm growing in my awe of God. Because I have the privilege of being in his word and watching him do these things. Father, would you transform our hearts? I pray, Lord, that you would continue to do the work that you are doing, that as we turn our eyes to you, as we desire to worship you and you alone, Father, that you would identify the things that are idols in our lives, that you would identify the, the, the places where we are dependent on what looks good to us, but it ultimately is not your will. It ultimately results in the bad fruit or the bad figs where God your will and your plan that may not look good to us turns out to be the best thing I, I pray Lord that you would help us to turn our eyes to you and worship you in those moments and that we would give you the glory and we would grow in our relationship to know you as a good father as a faithful God and as our provider in all circumstances we just give you we want to give you the glory and ask that you would take all the credit for all the things that you do. Um, help us to be humble and help us to, to recognize our role as servants, as being an elevated, godly thing, not as something low or somehow less um, than other, other roles on this planet, in the church, in our communities, in our jobs. We give you the glory. And again, ask, Lord, that you would protect your church in Afghanistan, protect the underground church, and use this time, this time of difficult persecution, Lord. I just pray that the gospel would flourish and we'd see your glory revealed in your name. Amen. You want to stand with us as we close in song? You need no other hiding place Our hope is safe within your name This we know, this we know Promise never to forsake What you began, you will sustain This we know, this we know Yeah.
Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen, and have a good week.